Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Megan Hollinger is a single mom with four kids in Bocahannas County. It took her nearly three years to get a spot at a childcare center for her young son. I literally rely on so much of our community and, and friends and family just to help me be able to, to do all of these things. It's almost impossible. It's barely possible as it is, you know. Even when there is childcare available, affording it is a real challenge. Some couples choose to split parenting duties, but that can mean little time together and very little sleep. I wake up super early so I can start work. I work, you know, all day till he has to go to work and then I take care of the kids, do dinner, do bath time, bedtime all by myself, and then get up and do it again. And we'll hear how indigenous people whose ancestors were forced out of Appalachia are reconnecting with their food heritage through pawpaws. That means pawpaw month, it's the month of September. That literally means pawpaw moon. That moon would indicate that was the time the pawpaws were right. It was time to go pick them. And probably also an indicator, hey, we're getting close to winter. That story and more this week, Inside Appalachia. Welcome Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Right now, Congress is arguing over spending trillions of dollars to boost the country's infrastructure. That covers roads and bridges, of course but also what's being called soft infrastructure. Things like childcare. Parents already face pressures and decisions unlike any before. How do you balance it all and maintain positivity in the midst of all these challenges? For many mothers, we're not just talking about parenting questions, but also how to balance that against work. West Virginia women have the lowest workforce participation rate in the country. Many Mountain State moms want to work, but can't because of the lack of childcare. They either can't find childcare, or they can't afford it. Last year's unexpected closure of schools in the spring, and then months of isolation from extended families and caregivers, really put a spotlight on these issues. But childcare challenges predate the pandemic. Emily Corio reports. With sunlight streaming into her kitchen, on a warm summer day, Megan Kruger sits at the table in front of her laptop dressed for work. As the noon hour approaches, she closes her computer. It's lunchtime. In front of the stove, she pours red sauce with meatballs into a skillet, some splatters on her blue dress, and she dabs it off with a kitchen towel. She tells her husband to wake the baby. She slices strawberries, warms pasta, and sets out plates. The separation between work life and home life blurred many months ago. As a work-from-home mom, there are pluses to this arrangement, like seeing your smiling baby boy wake up from his midday nap. But it's also exhausting. I wake up super early so I can start work. Um, I work, you know, all day until he has to go to work, and then I take care of the kids, do dinner, do bath time, do um, bedtime all by myself, and then get up and do it again. Early last year, Megan started a new job. She was pregnant, and the family had recently moved into a new house. Her husband, Nathan Stewart, was general manager at a restaurant in Morgantown. Their daughter, Nora, was in kindergarten. Things were falling into place. But then the pandemic hit and Nathan lost his job. I was devastated by losing my job because I loved my job. And the fact that we were <laughs> in the unknown was was scary and it was frightening. Um, but luckily, I mean, we, we leaned on each other. Oh yeah. I mean, we had Daniel the... coming, which was exciting. And, you know, he was born and he brought so much joy into a situation that was really tough. Soon after Daniel was born, Nathan started a new job, working nights at the WVU library. He would earn half the income he had in his previous job, but working nights allowed the couple to avoid childcare costs. About 20 miles south in Fairmont, Krista and Matthew Dixon faced similar childcare challenges. When their first child was born four years ago, their parents provided care for free. With the anticipation of another baby on the way early last year, the couple thought that arrangement would continue. Then came the ultimate surprise. That day when we were there for the ultrasound, as soon as they started, um, I instantly 
instantly knew that it was twins and I looked over and my husband was just he was as pale as could be I thought he might actually pass out <laughs> Adeline and Alice celebrated their first birthdays in July older sister Stella makes them giggle as she follows them around the kitchen island Krista says they looked into child care centers but it was going to be between 2500 and 3000 dollars a month at that rate Krista says she couldn't afford to work but she loves her job at a local nonprofit that helps those in poverty. So they turn to grandparents again to care for the children three days a week while she and Matthew made special arrangements to cover the other two work days. So my husband now works one day over the weekend, takes off one day during the week, and then I work from home and take care of um, the children for one day. So that's, that's how we're making it work right now. But if someone gets sick or has an appointment, there's a lot of scrambling to figure out childcare for the day. It is something that you would think would be so simple, something that so many people need, but it is incredibly, incredibly stressful. Um, whether, you know, it's trying to find affordable, safe childcare or um, even availability of it, it, it is a major problem. The experiences of the Kruger, Stewart, and Dixon families are familiar to many working parents and to West Virginia University research scholar Priscilla Santos. She's studied and written about early care and education issues in West Virginia for the group West Virginia Women Moving Forward. Santos says many parents are caught in a situation where they don't qualify for subsidies that help pay for child care, but don't make enough to pay out of pocket. In theory, it creates a disincentive for participation because why am I going to leave home and spend like a third or a half of what I'm making to pay for child care and try to survive on the rest? A West Virginia Women Moving Forward report published last year offers suggestions to support early care and education in the state such as through a shared services network that could lower cost and improve quality. If we could come up with ideas to provide centralized services, and that could also include janitorial services and, and food services, that way childcare workers would only be focused on their main core or main mission of educating and caring for children. Santos says research shows investments in early care and education not only help the current workforce, but the future one, too. The whole state stands to gain when children are well-educated and, and become more qualified workers in the future. There's a push underway at the federal level to increase support for early care and education. As part of the COVID relief bill passed earlier this year, child tax credits for 2021 increased, and some of that credit is being distributed to parents and caregivers in advance this year. There are income limits to qualify, but they are much higher than the eligibility limits for child care subsidies through the state. While Megan Kruger and Nathan Stewart don't qualify for the subsidies offered by the state, they will put the child tax credit payments towards Daniel's child care. I mean, that's a game changer. I mean, it would alleviate so much stress. Now they just have to wait for a spot to open at a provider. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Emily Corio in Morgantown. Parents in Appalachia like Megan and Nathan can wait months even years, to get their kids a spot in a child care center. That's because more than 60% of people in West Virginia live in a child care desert, according to the Center for American Progress. A child care desert means that there are more people who need child care than there are spots available. Child care was in trouble before the pandemic, and the reasons are complicated. Our producer, Roxy Todd, has been looking into this. Hey, Roxy. Hey, Mason. So... First of all, let's start with the financial reasons. More child care centers aren't available. Right. So heads up, trying to wrap your head around the child care system is really tough. There's some complicated stuff to digest. But as you know, I'm a mom. And I'll be honest, I had no clue until I enrolled my daughter into daycare just how expensive child care is. I mean, basically paying for full-time child care for an infant or toddler is more money than tuition for a community college in West Virginia, about $10,000 a year. 
And it's understandable because when you think about it, you want the highest level of care and you don't want teachers taking care of too many kids at one time. But as we heard in that last story, your income has to be very low to qualify for any kind of subsidy to help pay. Now, during the pandemic, that's changed, right? Yeah. So one of the biggest things West Virginia did with its COVID relief money is that it put it towards paying for childcare for essential workers, no matter their income. And it's not clear how long this program will last, but some are hoping the funds will last into 2022. And indirectly, that's probably helped keep a lot of childcare businesses open. Although about a quarter of early child care centers in the state closed last year. That's according to data from the Benedum Foundation. And in the early months of the pandemic, many, many child care centers closed. A bunch were able to reopen last summer, but the industry took a big hit here in Appalachia as well as across the country. And then the last thing I'll say on this point, and this is really a game changer, is the state also changed the way it pays child care centers for subsidized tuition. So previous to the pandemic, if a child was out sick or if their family was on vacation, the child care center didn't get paid for those days the kid was out if that kid was receiving subsidized tuition. I can imagine that would make it tough to run a business. Like, if you don't know for certain how much money you'll be getting month to month, since it can change if kids are out sick or whatnot. Exactly. So the state changed its policies last year during the pandemic, and now child care centers get paid for the whole month, not by how many days a kid is actually in school. And it may seem like a small change, but the people I spoke with say that it was a really big deal. Here's Dr. Jamie Jeffrey. She's a pediatrician at Charleston Area Medical Center and one of the people who's working to improve child care in West Virginia. And then it encourages every child care center to accept subsidy and not use that as an excuse not to accept subsidy so that every single child, no matter who or where they are, has access to affordable child care. Dr. Jeffrey is also one of the people working on a project called The Earlier the Better. They put together some of the recommendations for how the state should spend its COVID relief. They also advise the state's Department of Health and Human Resources, which is the agency in charge of regulating early child care. Another thing their group recommended during the pandemic is child care programs should receive more money per child who's enrolled in their school. Because, number one, child care centers were already struggling financially even before the pandemic. And then on top of that, most tried to reduce their classroom sizes to allow for social distancing. And they had to do a lot more cleaning. So all these changes take more staff. And that's why some of this COVID relief money went directly to child care centers to basically help them not go broke. It wasn't a lot of money, but according to Dr. Jeffrey, it helped. So let's talk a bit about staffing. Did any of the COVID money go toward better pay for child care workers? Not directly. And this is another huge issue with child care. Teachers are paid low wages between $10 and $11 an hour. Sometimes they don't even get sick or vacation leave. And ideally, they should at least have a bachelor's degree. And in most places, I mean, let's face it, you can earn more working at a fast food restaurant than as a lead teacher for a classroom of two-year-olds. So retaining staff is a challenge. I talked with Helen Post-Brown, who runs a child care center in Fairmont, West Virginia. It is the worst that we've ever experienced trying to hire staff. Luckily, we kept our core staff at the center, but, but we need more than them. And it has been very difficult to first find someone qualified and then someone willing to work now. Her child care center has been open 41 years, and she's another one of the advocates working on that group I mentioned, The Earlier the Better. They'd love to see more funding go towards teachers, making their salaries equivalent to their experience. Because ultimately, the directors at child care centers are running really thin margins, and they literally cannot pay these teachers more without going in the red. Which is so frustrating to hear, since, as you said earlier, parents can barely afford to pay for child care as it is. I mean, speaking with a lot of parents, child care is the single biggest expense, more than a mortgage or rent for a lot of people in West Virginia. And it's encouraging to hear from these people who want to make changes to the child care industry. But where all this money would come from to fix it, that's not really clear. That infrastructure bill that Congress is debating reportedly includes funding for child care. But the bill could change, and the details are still pretty sparse. 
Yeah, that funding would give parents and child care workers some support, but it would by no means be the one and only solution needed to fix this. So tell us more about the parents you spoke with. Yeah, so I talked with a few parents across the state, like a mom in Pocahontas County, West Virginia, who's waited for years to get her youngest children a spot into a child care center. It's the morning of the first day of school for Megan Hollinger's two oldest children. The single mom wakes at 6 to prepare lunches and get her four children dressed. Around 7.30, she packs them all into her car. 11-year-old Tessa, 8-year-old Abby, and 3-year-old Nathan. All right, you guys ready? Yeah. And one-year-old Gemma, her baby. Oh <laughs> you ready too? All right. Full speed ahead. She drops Abby off first at the elementary school, then Tessa at the middle school. I love you. Have a great day, okay? Good. Bye. Good. Bye. In the back seat, Nathan calls for his mom's right. attention. Wow. What's wrong with your shoes? Okay, well, I'll have to fix them when... She arrives at Nathan's child care center and fixes the shoes. I think we could maybe uh, figure out that loop a little better, but what do I know? I just work here. No, I don't really work here. Her last stop before heading into the office is Gemma's babysitter. Her youngest child is on a waiting list to get into child care. There are only two options for a registered child care program in Megan's County. Pocahontas is a rural, mountainous area in West Virginia. It took nearly three years for her son Nathan to get a spot. It's almost impossible to get a child under the age of two into a registered center. A year after he first started school, her three-year-old son Nathan is thriving. He loves it. He loves his teachers. I found out that he really loves to draw and write. So he, he likes to practice writing letters and things. And he, he just loves it. It's been really great for him. And, and to be around kids his age has been really great. She's happy with the level of care he's receiving and hopes her daughter Gemma will be able to get a spot at the same center. But she says she'll take the first available opening, even if it's at a school on the other side of her county. We have lots of childcare deserts, and those are places where there would not be enough available childcare slots for all the children who need them. This is Barbara Gebhardt. She's an expert in early childhood education and a consultant for an initiative to improve child care in West Virginia. It's most of the rural areas of our state. She and other child care advocates with the Earlier the Better project are hoping that some of the changes that were implemented during the pandemic can become more permanent. And beyond that, they really want to see early child care improve in terms of making it more affordable for parents and for child care workers and helping figure out how to improve access so families don't have to wait years to get into a child care center. Gebhard says that means more people need to open child care centers in rural communities or expand their businesses to be able to take care of more children. And their group would love to see the state or federal government helping them do that. And also with certain populations where there's just not a lot of child care, like families with infants and toddlers or families who work non-traditional hours, uh, which is many of our low-income families that are working shift work, they just need additional options for care in their neighborhood. The Earlier the Better group also wants to see more child care centers in West Virginia offer better quality education. They want to see staff have more training in topics like early childhood development and ideally bachelor's degrees. They say this would help improve the quality of care for all kids, including children with special needs. In Morgantown, West Virginia, Taryn Moser's second son was having behavioral problems at his child care center. He was two. He just had these outbursts, and because the staff was not educated or trained in how to handle his emotions and, you know, these, these tantrums and these episodes, it turned into two to three hour tantrums. The child care center eventually told Moser they couldn't continue to take care of her son. She could have gone through the local school system to try to get him into early preschool. Those programs exist in each county in West Virginia, free for parents who have children with special needs. But she found another child care center where staff were trained in occupational therapy, and she asked to be put on their waiting list. I knew that this would be the best environment for my son. Once we got him into this facility, he was able to thrive. But it took 16 months before a spot opened up for her son. During that time, she had babysitters and family members help out. 
but it was a struggle. And at times she considered quitting her job to be able to take care of her son. I didn't want him to be left behind. And every day it was such a challenge. And it was very, very hard for me to leave him every day. I was scared for my son. I wanted to stay home and I wanted to be with him. Back in Pocahontas County, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, time for Megan Hollinger to pick up her four kids. Normally, her two older kids walk home and spend the afternoon with a babysitter. But today, her sitter has to go to a doctor's appointment, so Megan picks up her children a little early. She says without her family to support her and neighbors who've helped with childcare, she doesn't think she could have kept working while she waits to get her kids into childcare. She picks up her youngest, one-year-old Gemma, first. On this hot August day, Gemma is singing Jingle Bells. <laughs> then they swing by the elementary school to pick up Abby. Gemma wraps her arms around her eight-year-old sister. They head out to pick up Nathan next, and then Tessa. Then the family drives back up the mountain to home. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Roxy Todd. In a minute. Learning on the computer was hard. I didn't get to see my friends that much since of COVID. My favorite thing about school is the playground. I'm excited about going to school in person. We'll hear from parents and kids. They talk about school during the pandemic and their hopes for this school year. That story and more after the break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. This fall marks a school year unlike any other. Most students have a lot of catching up to do. Test scores show a lot of kids fell behind in learning last year. In the fall of 2020, one-third of K-12 students in West Virginia failed at least one core subject. This may be partly because many children here in West Virginia don't have good internet access at home. Getting everyone up to speed is going to be a challenge. But at the same time, some kids do well with virtual learning. Liz McCormick reports on how the pandemic has caused some parents to rethink how their kids learn. By August 2020, 50,000 students in the Mountain State had signed up for full virtual learning. And for some, sticking with school at home was exactly what they needed. The first like two weeks we were read, so I couldn't go in person. That's Reese Wilbur, a 17-year-old student at Capitol High School in Charleston. By red, she means the color-coded COVID-19 risk map used to determine whether schools would be in person or remote each week. Red meant staying home. And I was like, I don't want this to be like how it's going to be all year of me, like not knowing if I'm going to be in person or not. So I made the decision to just go fully virtual. And that was honestly the best thing I could have done. Wilbur says she makes good grades and doesn't like to procrastinate, so she felt confident virtual school would be doable, and she did well. It really just allowed me to focus more on my work, honestly, or like feel more connected. Like, I feel like I really, really learned a lot this year. She says she felt like a college student, and the flexibility of her school schedule allowed her to work during the school year, too. She liked the setup so much that she wants to stick with virtual again for her senior year this fall. 
Wilbur is not alone in feeling like she was able to stay more focused doing virtual school. This was the same for Tara Polly, whose son signed up for virtual at George Washington High School in Charleston. Polly ended up running a small virtual learning pod with her son and her son's close friend. Both boys will be sophomores this fall. At first, choosing virtual school was about safety, but Polly says this learning model actually allowed both boys to get ahead in school and create a schedule that worked for them. We started working and we could work for a few hours, take a break, they could they could play video games, and then go back to getting their work done for a couple more hours. It just didn't have the same stress to it. Both boys are on Individual Education Plans, or IEPs, for attention issues. Polly says as the boys realized they were making better grades at home versus when they were in traditional classrooms, she noticed a boost in their mental health. They're smart boys, but I don't think that the way that things have been going for them in school, that they were seeing that of themselves. I feel, as we've gone through this year, that I've seen them change how they felt about themselves to a more positive view of their abilities. For Polly, sticking with virtual this fall is a no-brainer for her son because he flourished. There were also some families who decided to give homeschooling a try. The U.S. Census Bureau reports the rate of families in the U.S. that opted to try homeschooling for the 2020-2021 school year doubled compared to the previous year. Clover Wright is an assistant professor of early childhood education at California University of Pennsylvania. She has a doctorate of education in curriculum and instruction specializing in early childhood learning. Wright decided to homeschool her three boys last year out of safety concerns. Knowing that they didn't love the online learning and definitely not wanting to put our children in school unvaccinated. So we made the decision to withdraw them from the school system and homeschool them. Wright, who is the wife of former West Virginia Public Broadcasting News Director Jesse Wright, says she and her mother took turns throughout the year teaching the boys from home. Her sons, who are 11, 9, and 7, turned out to really like homeschooling. My goal for this year was to make the learning their job you know, to kind of give them autonomy over their education in a way that they'd never had, um, not in public school or, or even before they were in public school. To say to them, you know, what are your interests? What are you, what do you want to get good at? State health officials like coronavirus czar Clay Marsh reported last year that children are less likely to catch and spread COVID-19. But there is still a chance they could get sick and for a child to get very ill. There's also concern over multi-system inflammatory syndrome, or MIS-C, which is a condition that sometimes develops in children after contracting COVID-19 or being around someone who has had it. The condition can be deadly, but the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report most children recover from MIS-C after receiving medical care. Wright is concerned about this, any potential long-term health impacts, and she's worried about the new Delta variant. She says she will keep her sons in homeschool until they are eligible for the vaccine. For me, it's about minimizing the risks that my kids have. While some students ended up truly thriving in virtual or homeschool learning, some students found school at home particularly challenging. Students like Leighton Watts from South Charleston High School. At first it wasn't too bad, but after however many weeks and months of just not knowing what's coming next and just having to be inside, it really took a toll on us. Watts will be a senior this fall. He says he did fine grade-wise this past year, but the isolation from doing school at home was tough on him. I can't really explain how I felt in that time. Like, I've never experienced anything like that. It was the most difficult time I think I've ever gone through. Just the trauma from it, I'm still dealing with. Just, I don't ever want to have to sit in one place ever again, really, because that was terrible. The West Virginia Department of Education reported in the spring that one-third of all K-12 students in West Virginia failed at least one core subject in the fall. The agency says data for the spring won't be available until August, but the potential gap in learning was so concerning that a major push this summer in West Virginia has been towards summer remediation efforts.
For Watts, he says he's thrilled about having a hopefully more normal school year for his senior year. I'm not as worried now as I was at this time last year about the future. And that's a real relief knowing that things are getting back to the way they were. As more people get vaccinated, there is some question about exactly how our new normal will look when it comes to school. Early childhood education expert Clover Wright, who we heard from earlier, says how we educate kids will likely never be the same. And she says that's not a bad thing either. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Liz McCormick in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. You know, when we talk about schools, we often hear from adults. But what about kids? Next, we'll hear from several children who live in the eastern panhandle of West Virginia. They reflected back on the last school year and what they hope and fear for the year ahead. My name is Michael Sheehan. I'm eight years old and I'm going into third grade at Eagle School Intermediate in Berkeley County. So my favorite thing at school is hanging out with my friends at recess and being in the same class with them is really fun too. So I was in virtual. They gave us our own little iPads. I thought the math was a little easy. Reading class was pretty fun and hanging out with other people on virtual was kind of fun too. I liked how we got to learn new things. Virtual wasn't really that hard. It was pretty strange, pretty fun too. I don't really like masks, but I know that I have to wear one, school rules. And also my mom really wants me wearing one because Sammy, my little brother, he had asthma when he was born. My name is Levi Jones and I am seven. I'm going into second grade at T.A. Lowry. My favorite thing is math. Virtual school was um, a little hard because sometimes the um, speaker wouldn't work and um, sometimes, like, almost every time I scream, like, my screen went chill. Going back in person feels good. I think I'm looking most forward to is seeing my friends. My name is Victoria Moley and I'm five years old. I'm going to Rocky Hill School in Martinsburg. I'm going to into kindergarten. My favorite thing about school is the playground. My favorite subject is math. I'm excited about going to school in person. I sometimes have to wear a mask and it makes me feel comfortable. My butterfly mask is my favorite mask. My name is London Jones. I am nine years old, going into fourth grade at T.A. Larry Elementary, Jefferson County. My favorite thing in school is art. I like art because we get to do fun crafts, I was in virtual last year and art was different because we didn't really do any art on virtual. The thing that I know about the world in COVID is that it's finally coming to back where we need to wear a mask again. People aren't getting vaccinated. I'm tired of wearing masks because people won't get vaccinated. This summer I did a math tutor because on virtual I did not learn a lot of math. I'm actually pretty excited to go into fourth grade, not doing virtual. Hi, my name is Lucy Mitchell. I am 10 years old. I am going into fifth grade, and I go to North Jefferson Elementary in Jefferson County. My favorite thing about school is mostly when me and my friends work on projects in school, and we present them together in class. Learning on the computer was hard and if you couldn't understand something you would have to join the zoom and then it sometimes it wouldn't let you wouldn't hear anything or your video was off it was just complicated sometimes it was a synchronous day where we just did work that our teacher assigned for us and not any zooms but sometimes it was on zoom and work by ourselves the type of schooling that i like better was in person even though it was hard with masks and stuff 
it was still better to see people in real life than on a computer screen. I really missed in-person school when I didn't get to see my friends that much since of COVID. Sometimes last year when we had to wear our masks all the time, sometimes when I got in the car to go home, I forgot to take my mask off because I was so used to wearing it all the time. I feel safe. I feel like the masks will definitely help to keep the virus away. So just keep wearing them. That was eight-year-old Michael Sheehan, seven-year-old Levi Jones, five-year-old Victoria Mobley, nine-year-old London Jones, and 10-year-old Lucy Mitchell. They're elementary students from Berkeley and Jefferson Counties in West Virginia. That story was produced by West Virginia Public Broadcasting's education reporter, Liz McCormick. We know that the experiences children have in school affect how their later lives play out. Like, for instance, students who are suspended or expelled from school are more likely to have an encounter with the juvenile justice system. And in fact, West Virginia has one of the country's highest rates of incarcerated children. Even six years after sweeping reforms promised to fix the juvenile justice system. What's changed? What hasn't? And why are so many children spending years locked up? Anya Slepian spent this past summer reporting on the juvenile justice system in West Virginia for Mountain State Spotlight. Our producer, Roxy Todd, sat down with Slepian to talk more about what she found. So, Anya, here in West Virginia, we passed pretty substantial reforms to how juvenile justice is supposed to go. Back in 2015, some reforms were passed by the state legislature. But in your reporting, you found that the state really isn't tracking how much these reforms are helping West Virginia children. Is that right? Yes. And so what's really interesting is that one of the major parts of the reforms was supposed to be this oversight committee that was supposed to bring together all of the stakeholders from all of the different branches and agencies that are a part of the justice system. And they were supposed to have a really important role in encouraging data collection, but also doing comprehensive data analysis across all of these different agencies. And that data was really important because it was going to show things like which programs are most effective for keeping kids out of trouble and how much has the incarceration rate been reduced. And all of those data points are important for not only figuring out what's working, but also what could work better. And so Tessa Upin, who works with Governor Toplin's interagency governmental task force that helps come up with a lot of the recommendations for these reforms, she calls juvenile justice reform a forever process because it's not just about passing laws. It's also about keeping data to see whether or not those laws are working and then changing the laws when what you've done is working or isn't. And so that crucial ingredient that allows one law to become really comprehensive and effective reform, that's missing in the West Virginia system. So this task force was created in 2014. A year later, West Virginia had the highest rate of incarcerating young people in the country. And several years later, West Virginia still has a very high rate and actually the second highest in the country. So what's changed and are things getting better according to the people you've talked with? So the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, which is the national office that keeps track of all of this, they do residential placement census data every two years. So the last data that they have is 2019. Um, And from 2015, when the reforms were passed to 2019, the juvenile incarceration rate in West Virginia has gone down by around 12%, which is, is good to see. But like you said, West Virginia still has the second highest rate of overall juvenile incarceration. So according to the people that I talked to, a lot of the changes that were the most effective were procedural changes. So things in the courtroom that changed the way that kids were dealt with. So one example of that is that there are two different types of juvenile offenses, status offenses and delinquent offenses. And the difference between them is that a status offense is something that wouldn't be considered a crime if a kid were an adult. So for example, running away or truancy, incorrigibility, which basically means not listening to your parents. These are all status offenses. And before the reforms, there was a shockingly high number of kids who had committed status offenses, which again, aren't really crimes um, if you're an adult. 
and had been put in residential placement for those status offenses. So kids skipping school, truant kids were put in in residential facilities. And so one of the big changes from the reforms is it it changed that. So with only very few exceptions, kids who commit status offenses are no longer put in residential placement facilities. And that's one thing that has reduced the juvenile incarceration rate. So one of the people who you spoke with was Jared Mitchell. He was in foster care in West Virginia and he also spent some time in the juvenile justice system. Can you talk a little bit about his story and how it relates to these trends over time? And, and, and could the situation that happened to Jared happen today? Sure. So like you said, Jared was somebody who was put in foster care in West Virginia uh, when he was pretty young. Once he was in the state's custody, kind of the way that things worked was that he had a couple of runaway charges from different facilities and a couple other minor charges that he got put on probation for. But when you're already in the state's care, then there isn't really a place for them to put you on probation. So he ended up being put in different residential placement facilities repeatedly and kind of shuffled back and forth between them just when there weren't other options for the Department of Health and Human Resources to to place him in. So that story is, is a little different from most kids because he started out within the foster care system. But There is a high overlap between kids who are in Child Protective Services and kids who are put in the juvenile justice system, and there is sort of a revolving door between the two. Now, the question of whether what happened to him could happen today, on paper, no. The DHHR, when we reached out to them, says that they have policies that prevent this from happening and that it could not happen. And technically, in, in the 2015 legislation, they're right that that's not what would happen. However, it's a little more complicated than that um, because the system is basically functioning without any higher level of, of, of state oversight. So there's nobody really looking over the DHHR's shoulder saying, hey, what are you doing? With the exception of the legislature who has a million other things on their plate, right? So technically, according to the laws, no, that should not be happening today anymore. And, and we certainly hope that that's the case. But the, the organ that was kind of meant to ensure that that was true, that was created by the 2015 reforms, again, has disappeared. And so it's hard to say for sure. Anya Slepian spent the summer as an intern at Mountain State Spotlight. Her two-part series on the juvenile justice system in West Virginia can be found on our website, wvpublic.org. For our final story, let's talk about one of Fall's most fantastic treasures, pawpaws. If you've never tasted one, it's kind of like a banana and a mango got together and had a baby. Kinda. Mid-September marks the beginning of pawpaw season. The small, yellow and green fruit has a short growing season, which usually lasts into October. You probably won't find a pawpaw in a grocery store. You've pretty much got to go out in the woods and find them yourself, although some farmers' markets do sell them. Even if they aren't widely available today, pawpaws have been a part of the human food system in Appalachia for thousands of years. And it's one of the foods many indigenous people lost when they were pushed off their ancestral lands. But not completely lost. Because, as it turns out, they carried the pawpaw with them. As part of our Folkways series, Brian Costco has more. It's early August, a fresh summer afternoon in Jackson County, Ohio. Behind me is the Leo Petroglyph, a huge rock carved with images of animals and humans. It's the work of indigenous Americans who visited this site over 1,000 years ago. I'm here with Chris Schmiel, the founder of the Ohio Pawpaw Festival. What we're searching for isn't made of stone, but just like the petroglyph, it survived here for thousands of years. These pawpaws are on the edge of the forest. There's a clump of them about 15 or so feet away, and there's, you know, they grow in a patch. Chris is an expert in all things pawpaw, and over the years, he's noticed something about where pawpaws grow. It just seems like every one of these ancient sites I hear about or talk about with someone, they mention there's pawpaws everywhere at places like Shawnee Lookout, the Serpent Mound, there's pawpaws there, this place. The mounds are earthworks that functioned as graves and ceremonial sites for the Hopewell, Adena, and later the Fort Ancient People, a Native American cultural group that flourished in the Ohio River Valley from about 1000 to 1600 AD. 
Some scholars believe that the Fort Ancient people who made the Leo petroglyph were ancestors of the Shawnee, who by the 17th century would call this part of Ohio home. These are ancient native plants. They're well adapted to our soils and the region. So these things have been here for a long time. We know that the pawpaw was an important resource for the Shawnee. How? Because even after being forcibly removed from this region by the U.S. government in the early 19th century, it left an imprint on Shawnee culture. Joel Barnes is one of the major guardians of Shawnee culture and language in the present day. I'm the uh, language director and archives director for the Shawnee tribe. I'm also a Shawnee tribal member. He explains that the Shawnee marked time by the phases of the moon. And that means pawpaw month. It's the month of September. That literally means pawpaw moon. The pawpaw was important enough to the Shawnee people's way of life that they named a moon after it. That moon would indicate that was the time the pawpaws were right. It was time to go pick them. And probably also an indicator, hey, we're getting close to winter. Joel's ancestors were forcibly moved from their Ohio Valley home in Appalachia by the Indian Removal Act of 1830. The Shawnee were sent first to Kansas, and then after the Civil War, they were pushed into Oklahoma. For the Shawnee, the pawpaw is a direct tie to Appalachia and their uprooted past. It's hard to find out in Oklahoma because the state is located at the edge of the tree's climate zone. I do know in present day we have some tribal members that have planted them out in their yards just to get them to grow. They're not quite that abundant in this part of Oklahoma. Once you start moving east and get over into Missouri and around Joplin area, you start seeing more and more of them pawpaw trees. Joel does remember eating the fruit when he was growing up. It was rare, but it existed. We never did get really fancy with it. We would just cut it open, peel it, and just eat it. It was pretty good, and I've ate some off and on throughout my life, but it's been a while since I've had any. Cut off from their ancestral homeland and the plants that grow there, Joel says the Shawnee have seen some of the pawpaw's cultural relevance fade with time. Some of these old folks, they all had them, they've all ate them, but there's nothing really far as any type of ceremonial dance or any type of ceremony in regards to the pawpaws. Just if there ever was, nobody knows. But somehow, through all of that upheaval and across all those miles, the Shawnee's connection to the pawpaw tree has endured. It is a food largely absent from their physical surroundings, but traces of it still persist in memory and in the Shawnee language itself. That means I'm hungry for papa. Dr. Devin Mahasua has devoted her life to recovering lost knowledge of indigenous foods. She is a professor at the University of Kansas, a citizen of the Choctaw Nation, and also a Chickasaw descendant. Distressed by the lack of knowledge of traditional foodways among her people, Devin has made pawpaw and other pre-contact foods a focus of her research. I have just spent decades taking a look at travelers' reports, you know, people who observed back in the 1700s coming through. Nobody ever mentioned pawpaw. You know, they just say this strange fruit. She hasn't found any traditional pawpaw recipes among the Choctaw, who called the Mississippi Valley and Southern Appalachia home before they were forced west. She says there's a reason for that. Like a banana, the pawpaw has a short window of ripeness. That meant that it was probably consumed right on the spot, a convenient fast food. You know, they would just wait until the time to eat it. They don't store well, you know, and maybe they dried it. It could be that they mixed it with other things, which is what I like to do. Despite the difficulty of obtaining written records, Devin has her own special ways of preparing pawpaw that extend its use. She mashes it, mixes it with berries, cooks it down into a flavorful sauce, and then freezes it. Occasionally, she'll add it to cornbread. And even though they had to forage to find pawpaws, her Choctaw grandparents introduced her to the fruit when she was a child. My grandparents lived in Muskogee, Oklahoma, and they had a massive garden. It was a model of my grandmother's ancestors when they lived in Mississippi. And they had all kinds of trees. They didn't have pawpaws, but they knew where they were. Just like Joel, Devin has childhood memories of pawpaw, even though it was scarce. Her first taste was in her grandmother's kitchen. 
it was delicious. It was just the most amazing flavor. It was like a sort of like a banana mango combo with a hint of a little strawberry. Devin runs a popular Facebook group on indigenous foodways. There's a lot of interest among American Indians in getting reacquainted with the food their ancestors ate, she says. But many are disappearing or not available where they live, like the pawpaw. It's one of these foods where some people will never get a chance to taste it. There are a few pawpaw trees in Kansas where she currently lives, but the fruit tends to be on private property and inaccessible. I just wish people who had them on their property, you know, recognized and appreciated what they have. Devin is attempting to regain access to the food her ancestors ate. Three years ago, she decided to try and grow pawpaw herself. She's propagating about 50 seeds in containers and eventually hopes to transplant them. It's a long process. I ate the fruit and then I packed the seeds away and I put them in the refrigerator. They overwintered. And then I took them out at the end of February and planted them. And nothing happened for months and months. And it wasn't until the end of July that finally one sprouted. It'll be years until they're ready to transplant and even longer until they bear fruit. So why is she going through all this trouble? Devin believes that not having access to where your ancestors lived and the foods they ate is a form of historical trauma that needs to be healed. For most tribes, that is where, you know, they believe they were created. It's sacred areas, they're sacred plants, it's where they're dead or buried. It's very important that that people who are interested in learning their culture and being reconnected to their culture understand what it was that sustained their ancestors. As the pawpaw demonstrates, food touches so many aspects of culture, including language, seasonal life, and cosmological stories. The food teaches us all of these different lessons that expand into every aspect of your life. By bringing these foods and their lessons back into circulation, Devin hopes to address some of the losses her people have sustained. It's easy to take the abundance of pawpaw for granted in the hills of Appalachia. But far away, on the plains of Oklahoma, it's a piece of precious history for those who once called this region home. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Brian Costco in Athens, Ohio. Brian's story is part of our Inside Appalachia Folkway series. Do you know a story we should be telling? Send us an email at insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. I'm Mason Adams. Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Blue Dot Sessions, Jake Sheps, and Dinosaur Burps. Roxy Todd is our producer. Jade Arthur Holtz is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Caitlin Tan and Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachian newsletter. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.